If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Good to have you here at Hope Church. It's always good to be able to worship the Lord together and to learn from his word together. Many of you know that we have been studying from the letter of the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, and we're looking at his first letter, 1 Timothy, this morning, chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, this week I happened to be rummaging through some files, and I came across some um, church bulletin announcement bloopers, and um, well, I laughed to myself, and I thought I'd share some with them with you. These were actually written in the church bulletin and printed this way. Uh, here's the first one. I think they're kind of funny. You tell me. Low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> here's another one. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is hell? Come early and listen to the choir practice. <laughs> it's always good to have that bulletin checked before you print it, right? Potluck supper, this Sunday at 5 p.m., prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> Instead of meditation, it was medication. <laughs> you know, the church is made up of people, and people are people. Right? We all have our shortcomings. We also have those things that God has um, prepared us or equipped us with, things that God has made us different than others maybe, and certainly equipped us in order to better not only live life well, but better to serve him best. Uh, different talents, different skills, different spiritual gifts. But there's one thing that God has given for all of us to do, and it's not a matter of skill, it's not a matter of talent or spiritual gift, but it is something that God has given for every professing Christian to do, and that is prayer. And that's what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 is all about. And that's where my emphasis will uh, land this morning, on prayer. Your prayer life will be revolutionized when you realize that the primary goal of prayer is not to get something from God. Often that's how we think of prayer. How can I obtain this from the hand of God because I can't do it on my own, so I'm calling on God to intervene and he could do it because obviously I can't because if I could, I would, and I haven't because, well... It's beyond me. But God is big. God is great. He could do it. And many of us simply pray when we need something from God. But prayer is so much more than just that. Prayer is about communing with God, about intimately interfacing with God. That right there should change your whole perspective on why you pray. Every aspect of your life will depend on this intimacy with God. The better you know God, the better your life will be. And prayer allows you to know God better. And not only will your life be better when you pray better or pray more, more frequently, but the life of those around you will be better 
Your marriage will be better. Your friendships will be better. Your parenting will be better. Your work will be better. Every aspect of life improves when you know God better. The more you know God, the better your life becomes and the life of those around you. The more you know God, the better our life together as a church becomes as well. And so take a look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're only looking at one verse, and actually we're not even looking at the entire verse, but most of it, it reads this way. First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Here's our text this morning. And you'll notice there that there are four aspects to speaking with God or to God. Four aspects of speaking to God. And what the Apostle Paul lists here in this order is supplications, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving. Now, the meaning of each do overlap, but they are distinct. Supplication means that you would entreat God, that you would ask of God. I was talking to a man this week who was telling me that he was looking to go on vacation outside of the country, but his children's passports had not come. So he was pleading with God, oh God, please make the post office work in a timely way. And he called it a beg prayer. He was beg praying God, he told me. And indeed, those passports arrived a day before he needed it. But on that same day, his wife got sick and they weren't able to travel. (laughs) But he got the passports. What was he doing? Well, it was supplication. Entreating God. And then Paul speaks of prayer. And it is a a term referring to prayer in general. But the the word there in the original language uh, refers to asking from God, but with a sense of reverence, a sense of worship. So coming to God and speaking to God simply because he is God. Not because I need anything from him, not because I want something from his throne, but simply because God is God. And if he is God, then I should interact with him and I should bow my life before him, I should worship him, and I should speak to him in a reverent way. Paul says, Tim, be sure you and your church are doing that as well. And then you should also be making intercession, which is a form of prayer, yes. In the original language, again, in the Greek, it literally means to fall in with someone. To fall in with someone. In other words, you are praying for them in the sense that you are being involved with them. You are being involved in that person's life. You're praying because of some particular struggle that person is facing. Or, or you're praying with sympathy and even empathy for that individual. You have compassion. Uh, there, there's a, a fellow that I've been praying for for the last few weeks that I read about. He's a 22-year-old man in Pakistan who was recently, who was recently charged with blasphemy and given the death penalty, even though there was no real evidence against him. He's incarcerated, and as is, he's going to die for blasphemy against Allah. My prayer, my intercession for him, 
because he's just burdened my heart, is that he would be freed. But I know that often God does not do that. So my prayer is also that God would use them in prison. That he would be a testimony of the gospel of Christ even before he dies, as so many else others have. I'm reminded of General Noriega. Do you remember who he was? Some of you do. He was the dictator of Panama. And he was captured because of, uh, by the American army and, and incarcerated. Some people would say he was a vile dictator, corrupt as he could possibly be. But it was in prison that he gave his life to Christ. He heard the gospel. And when he died, next to his prison bed was a beaten up, tattered Bible filled with notes and underlining. All those years of incarceration, he was studying the word of God. He became a true believer, follower of Christ. And not only that, but many in prison in, in Panama, or wherever it was, actually it wasn't in Panama anymore, wherever he was in prison, heard the gospel and came to Christ as well through the dictator, the vile dictator, converted and changed radically. At one point on a bus filled with prisoners, there was an uprising. The guard was taken over. And that's when General Noriega stood up and he said, Men, this is not who we are. This is who we used to be. We are now prisoners, but we are free in Christ. Sit down. And they did because the general spoke. A new general one under the command of Christ. And so I pray for this young man in Pakistan, interceding that he would be able to be an influence for Christ in a world where Christ is not tolerated in Pakistan. That's intercession. And then there is thanksgiving, another form of prayer which simply is a matter of speaking to God with expressions of gratitude, looking at your own life and saying, wow, God has really been good to me, and so now you give thanks to God. Thanksgiving. So Paul says that that's how we should be praying. Four types of prayer. Supplication, worshipful prayer, intercession, and expressions of gratitude. But let me draw for you, to your attention, the importance of prayer. We see it right there at the very beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what Paul says. You see it? He says, first of all. First of all. In other words, of first importance. Of all the things I could be talking to you about right now, this is what I choose to say to you because this is vital. Prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. Now, let me ask you this morning. You don't need to answer, but do answer to yourself, but not to me. Uh, what, what brings you here this morning? Hopefully, it's not just routine. On Saturday mornings, you go to the farmer's market. On Sunday, you go to church. On Monday, you go to school. You go to work. It's the routine. I hope that's not the case. But rather, you're here because you want to meet with God. You're here because you want to 
worship God. You're here because you've been in, in, embattled by the world around you all week long, and now you come to find rest. Now to come and affirm the hope you have in Christ. You come because you want to give God the glory he deserves. And you come because you want to do it with other people who are of the same heart and mind. You want to feed your soul. You want to pray together. Take a look at what the psalmist writes in Psalm 25, verse 5. I'm reading from the ESV. He, he writes this way. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. Look at this. For you I wait all the day long. There's a constant longing, yearning for God all day long in this psalmist. There's a constant praying and a communing and interacting with God all day long. You see, prayer is more than just an early day ritual. Like having coffee and a, and a buttered bagel. That's what you do every morning. You know, every morning for decades now, I get up and make myself a, 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 a mug of espresso. I'm Brazilian. That's what you do. <laughs> but on occasion, I get up and say, I don't even want coffee. Why am I making coffee? And I'll skip the coffee. But left to myself, it's just a routine. It's what I do. Prayer should not be just what I do, but prayer should be, this is what I want to do. I want to speak to God, and therefore I do speak to God, and to do so throughout the day. I do not need to be on my knees. Why? I don't even need to have my eyes closed. But I should be communing with God about those things that pertain to me and the people around me and my God. All day long a desire, a longing to commune, to have an intimacy with the creator of this world. And, and, and as you find yourself praying, what you will discover is that prayer will strengthen you to do the right thing. Prayer will strengthen you to do what is right. Then, of course, there's Psalm 4 and verse 8. And look at what the psalmist says there. He writes, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. So it's the end of the day. And what does he do? He prays. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. He acknowledges God before he closes his, eye, his eyes and sleep. At the end of the day, he prays. My friends, please realize that prayer is not the last alternative. It is the priority. I can't tell you how often I hear people say, well, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll pray for you. As if I can't do much, but I guess I could do that a little bit. No, it's the other way around. You realize that, right? The most you could do for anybody, beyond holding their hand, beyond embracing them, beyond giving them money, beyond taking them to the doctor, the most you could do for somebody is pray. Start there. And it may lead to something else, but start there. Pray. It's not the least you could do, it's the most you could do, and it needs to be the priority of what you do. It needs to be your common practice, but not your routine practice. 
this. So Paul writes, first of all, prayer is vital. Secondly, we have to keep in mind that prayer is meditation, but it's not meditation of the sort of these Eastern mystic religions that have made their way over here. I always blame the Beatles. The Beatles brought it over. They did. They're not alone, but they popularized it back in the 60s when I was just a boy. You know, there are various forms of Eastern meditation uh, that have been adopted into our culture, our Western culture, usually through practices like yoga. And it seems to me that they are rather similar one to the other. Uh, I have, for example, here uh, two examples. One is concentration meditation in which the uh, meditator places focused attention on a particular object. And through a mantra or through a repetitive prayer, minimizing all the distractions, sometimes with legs crossed, sometimes not, that the meditator brings to mind, back to mind, that one thing they're focusing on, and they concentrate on that one particular thing, and they, with repetition, try to blank out their minds. According to the International Journal of Psychotherapy, it says, focusing attention on the process while disregarding its purpose or final outcome. That's a form of Eastern mystic meditation, disregarding its purpose or the final outcome. Uh, there's also a form of meditation which uses visualization. Um, I believe it's pronounced Kikang or Qikang from the world of China, but not them alone. It has very much become a part of our American way of thinking and religions. And in this form of meditation, the meditator concentrates on a flow of energy, the qi or the qi, uh, energy in a body. And it starts here in the abdomen, and then that energy circulates throughout the body, and then it disperses. And some people find that very relaxing. Some people find it that they're able to calm down and escape the travails of life, at least for those moments, and that it brings them more to a centered being. Please understand that that is not biblical prayer. That is not biblical meditation. In fact, biblical meditation is quite the opposite. Biblical meditation is not a matter of uh, losing yourself in repetition, uh, whether you're saying Om or Hail Mary. That's not biblical Prayer, biblical prayer, does not disregard the final outcome. Rather, it places emphasis on the outcome. Biblical prayer places emphasis on the purpose of why you're praying. And it's not based on an inner feeling. It's based on the objective truth that God is there with you. It's not self-projection of some sort of abdominal energy. And neither is biblical prayer some way of stimulating yourself into calmness. That's not what biblical prayer is. Biblical prayer is quite the opposite. If you take a look at the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, you'll see there that the Bible does use the word meditation. 
but it uses the word meditation in a completely different way. In Psalm 119, beginning at verse 15 and then 16. In verse 15, it tells us to meditate. And then verse 16 explains what that means. Look at verse 15. It says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. And then verse 16 explains what it means to meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Verse 16 reads, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's prayer. That's meditation. Go back to 1 Timothy and go just beyond where we are this morning to chapter 4. And again, verses 15 and 16. The ESV renders verse 15 this way. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. The old King James Version reads this way, and it's accurate. It reads, meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Meditate on these things. And the New American Standard reads this way. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And then verse 16 explains what it means to meditate or to practice these things. Look at verse 16. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teachings or your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So you see what it means to meditate, and then, of course, the Bible makes it absolutely clear. In fact, the word for meditate in the original language in the New Testament means that you would care for and attend to something very carefully. Meditate on it. Don't empty your mind, but rather fill your mind. To meditate, then, in the Scriptures means that you actually allow it to revolve in your brain. Consider it. Think about it. Don't set it aside. Ponder it and practice it. It is not a loss of consciousness. It is not a state of emptiness or otherness. It's quite the opposite. To meditate, to pray in a meditative way, means that you are fully absorbed with God's word. That you are in the moment. That you are speaking, you are dialoguing with God. I think it's amazing that by just pausing and praying, we actually have the ears, the attention of God. That the creator of this world, the sustainer of all this universe, the one who has made all the intricacies of creation, that he would listen to me, that he would listen to you. And that he is aware already of what you're going to say. And yet he listens. You know, I have a problem. I'll admit it. My wife will attest to it. When I think I know what she is going to say, I don't listen very well. I like to think I am right because I know what she was going to say. On occasion, I jump the gun and I really don't know what she was going to say. And she goes, see, that's why you should have listened. But often I am right. I know what she's going to say. We've been married 30 years. I know we're inside out. 
you would think that God, knowing everything that's on my mind, he would say, well, you know, I have other things to do. And he does. And he would say, you don't have to, you don't have to say it. I know what you're going to say. No, that's not God. Instead, he leans over and he listens. And he listens more. He wants to hear you pray. Even though he knows what you're going to say. He knows your needs. When I pray, I am not speaking to myself. I am not speaking to my soul. I am not speaking to my conscience. I am speaking to God. That's biblical prayer. Notice here my third point this morning. The Bible tells us that prayer is required. I don't like guilting people at all. I, I'm not one of those preachers who wants to make people feel guilty. But in all honesty, when the word of God says something and we fall short, we should feel guilty. The good thing is that God does remove our guilt. He does forgive us. And I know that I, for one, do not pray enough. And maybe you would agree that you don't pray enough. We do need to pray more. Prayer is commanded. And so Paul says here, first of all then, I urge, I urge a supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Notice there the urgency. He says, I urge. In fact, the Apostle Paul is echoing the words of Jesus Christ. You'll remember what was just read to us. Gabe just read from Matthew chapter 6 for us, what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the prayer for the disciples that the Lord prayed. Notice what Christ says there. He says, verse 9, he says, This then is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. If you go backwards to verses 5 and 7, Jesus Christ says, And when you pray. Notice that Jesus Christ did not say, If you pray. Well, if you come around and you have a little extra time, we'll pray this way. No, that's not what he said. He said, when you pray. In other words, I expect you to be praying. It's only wise that you would be praying. A person who professes Christ as Lord and Savior is also a person who prays. Prayer is expected of us. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, pray without ceasing. In other words, your life, your day from day episode should be prayerful. Prayerful. Not just once in the morning, once at night, but the whole of the day, coming back to God and speaking to him. Pray continuously as an ongoing practice. Prayer is commanded because prayer is the chief means. Get this. Prayer is the chief means by which we commune with God, our Savior. Now, there's other ways in which we commune with God. What we're doing here this morning, worshiping, is a form of, a form of communion with God, for sure. Reading the scriptures is a form of communion with God. Practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper is a means of communing with God. But prayer is a primary means of communing with God, whereby we speak to God we divulge our own thoughts to him. 
we are compelled then to trust in him through prayer. Prayer makes me want to trust God. And even enjoy the communion I have with the creator of this universe. Prayer prepares me for worship. Prayer reminds me of what I'm thankful for, or what I should be thankful for. Prayer allows me to intercede for others. Prayer is commanded. And let me make one last point this morning. And to do that, we have to come out of 1 Timothy 2 and go back to Matthew chapter 6. So if you would, Matthew chapter 6, that's the text that was read to us earlier. And of course, that's Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Luke also uh, records that for us. But let's stick to the Matthew text this morning. The very beginning of Matthew chapter 6. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. I want to point out to you a few things that hinder our prayers. Our prayers could actually be hindered. And the scriptures here make very clear as to what they are. I believe I have three of them for you. You'll notice, first of all, in chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 5 and 6, you'll notice that praying to be seen and heard by others will actually hinder your prayers. Praying so that people will say, wow, now there's a religious person. Or, wow, there's a righteous person. Wow, there's a man who knows how to talk to God. Well, there's a holy lady. That's actually going to hinder your prayers. Look at what Jesus Christ said. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and in the street corners. Now, I don't know that anybody here stands in the street corner. We don't have corners around here. right? I don't know that anybody here stands in the street corner and prays, but in those days that was more common. Today, we're afraid to pray in public. But back then, it was very common. But sometimes, we just want to wow people with our ability to pray. Well, there's a holy person. There's a person that knows God. I wish I was so eloquent. Listen, if you are eloquent in your prayers, good. Keep it up. But don't do it to impress others. God is not impressed by your eloquence. In fact, it says that they have received their reward already. What reward is that? The pat on the back from others. That's what you're getting. <laughs> it will hinder your prayer. Christ says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Praying for others to be impressed will adversely impact your prayers. But if you go then to verses 7 and 8, Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, you see that praying meaningless words and repetition will also hinder your prayers. These are the words of Christ, and he said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, the repetition. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is not a religious exercise. Neither is it supposed to be some sort of self-sacrificial effort to get God's attention. Prayer is not penance. 
Some people treat prayer like if I do this and I make it very hard for myself and I look like I'm suffering through this process, God is going to say, okay, I'll listen. That's not prayer. Prayer is communing. It's talking to God, not sacrificing. And neither is prayer supposed to be done absent of cognitive awareness. You're supposed to be reasoning through your conversation with the Lord. And by the way, there are no magical words that turn the key. And so many people will say, in the name of Jesus, amen. As if that was abracadabra, now you got to do it, Jesus. No, to pray the name of Jesus means you pray according to his authority and according to his will. Prayer should be thought out. Often when I pray from here, I wrote it all out. I don't know if you see me reading it or not. But I like to think through my prayers. It should always be respectful of God. Prayers should be about what is in my heart, where do I stand now, and God, I'm divulging that to you, even though you already know it. But in divulging, I'm saying, I am yours, and you are mine. And I'm placing myself under your will, because I need you. Because you are great, and I am not. We need to be reminded of that daily, don't we? It should not be meaningless. It should not be rote. I'll tell you another little secret about me. I've never memorized the Lord's Prayer. Today, I, I believe I can recite it because I've heard it so many times. I've read it so many times. But I intentionally never memorized Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because I never wanted to say it in a rote way, in a meaningless way. I never wanted it just to roll off my tongue as if it was, well, now I did my religious exercise. Prayer should never be wrote. You should always be engaged in that conversation. Words matter. Never should it be habitual in the sense of, well, this is just a routine. Habitual in that you do it constantly, but not in the sense that, well, I'm just making my coffee again this morning. And I'll give you one more. Same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Things that hinder your prayer life. Here's a third one. Praying with sin in your heart. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin will hinder your prayers. Look at what Christ said, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, granted, that is a complex set of verses. No, no question there. But suffice to say this morning is that dwelling, unconfessed sin is going to hinder our prayers. Either, either prayer will keep you from sinning or sin will keep you from prayer. It's what James chapter 5 verse 16 reads, right? The prayer of the righteous person has great power. The prayer of the righteous. The person who is repenting and confessing. Well, next week we'll take a look at the end of that verse where it says, 
for all people. Pray for all people. Now, at a glance, it sounds rather simple, right? But there are people we actually don't want to pray for because we don't want God to bless them. <laughs> right? I know who some of you are thinking of. You don't want God to bless them. Well, we'll take a look at that further next week. For this morning, let's stop there. Let's be reminded that prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. Number two, prayer is not meditation in the sense of this, these mystic religions. It has a purpose. It's to be uh, reasoned through. Prayer is commanded of us. We are to uh, make to the Lord supplication, uh, worship, prayerful worship, intercession, and thanksgiving. And number four, prayer can be hindered. And so we must be aware of what's going on in our own hearts as we approach God in prayer. I think these are good principles to kickstart our prayer life, if indeed your prayer life needs just that. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, thank you. As we transition from the pulpit to the table, we ask, O oh God, that by your good grace you would remind us to pray and how to pray. And may you be glorified by it. And may we be blessed through it. In your name, O oh Christ, we ask. Amen.